Star Trek. That's not the intro. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Attention, all listeners. Podcasting is a choice, and one doesn't just make that choice once. One makes it again and again. And thus, we are here talking about the second season of Star Trek Discovery, once again with my dear brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, let's do our our classic non-spoiler section at the front. What did you think of the second season of Star Trek Discovery? Oh boy, non-spoilers. For a good portion of this season, I was a fan. Like, for 12 or 13 episodes, it looked like a solid improvement over the first season. And then the finale just turns everything on its ass, and I don't know how to talk about it without spoilers. I've said many times on this show, I judge things strongly on their endings. Yes. I place too much importance on the ending of something. If a bad story leads up to a really good, compelling, well-constructed ending, then it wasn't a bad story, because it was the necessary story to build up to that compelling, well-constructed ending. If a good story has a slapdash, nonsensical ending tacked onto it, then it was enjoyable for a while, but ultimately, what's the fucking point? The ending is what stays with you. The ending is what matters. I mean, you know, maybe you have a favorite scene that happens in Chapter 3, but the ending is, like, how the story affects you. And so, I judge things heavily on their endings. And the ending of this season of Discovery is where it all fell apart, for me. Interesting. I can see how you get there, but I kind of don't feel like it fell apart that badly. It's hard to talk about this without spoilers. Yeah, it's hard to say, it's hard to talk about any of it without spoilers. They definitely, a lot of the criticisms I had of the first season they addressed in the first 12 episodes or so of the second season. It wasn't as, like, grimdark as the first season tended towards. Everyone didn't hate each other anymore. The episodes were more standalone than the first season was. It was still part of an overarching story because, you know, heaven forfend, you actually do real standalone episodes in television in 2019. Like, if J. Michael Straczynski proposed Babylon 5 now, the response from the network would be, yeah, but can you, like, interconnect the episodes more? So, I mean, it's not to say they were unrelated to each other, but the individual stories stood on their own better. It wasn't like watching one 30-minute clip of a soap opera. It was like individual stories that had a beginning, middle, and end. There was a solid segment in the middle of the season where the arc elements were there, like at the beginning and end of each episode, but the main thrust of at least three, four, five episodes was pretty independent. 
So I liked all of those things. Those were all improvements over things that I disliked a bit about the first season and problems we talked about in our episode about the first season. I do think they sort of... I mean, we'll get into it more in the spoiler section. I feel like they overreacted a bit to some criticisms of the first season, and the ending plays into that as well, which I felt was a giant overreaction to some criticisms of the first season. But for the most part, it was a solid improvement over the first season, I thought, the first 12 episodes. I think the whole season felt pretty consistent in a way that the first season didn't, in part because of all of the production difficulties and the shifting producers and writers and all of the tumult that the first season went through that led it to feel very choppy. Well, this season was not without its production difficulties. Really? Weren't the showrunners fired after episode three because they were abusing the staff and the writers? Oh god, that was this year, wasn't it? Yeah, so like, this season was not without its production tumult, and I think that also plays into what happened in the finale, which we can't get into without spoilers. I understand what you mean about the the grimness of season one. I think that's an overreaction that happens in a lot of media properties and in a lot of fandoms, where the source material is kinda goofy, I mean, you can't deny that Toast is quite goofy. And even the uh, Berman era Star Trek is pretty goofy and kind of a kid's show. Which was fine when I was a kid, growing up watching it. But there tends to be kind of an overreaction in the other direction sometimes. I think from things that I've read, I'm certainly no expert, but from things that I've read, comic books have been going through this for a long time. And the superhero movies kind of show that as well, in some ways. Well, one of the superhero movie franchises. Well, it comes out in different ways. But in, in Star Trek, there's a kind of fetishization of the original series that still doesn't want to recognize that it was goofy as hell. And so you get things like Discovery Season 1, and to an extent Season 2 where it's set in the same era, and they want to bring in a lot of the plot elements, they want to bring in a lot of the proper nouns. They want to keep mentioning things as a kind of, um, you know, as a kind of reminiscence therapy. That is a very good way of describing it. They want to incorporate the proper nouns. <laughs> exactly! They don't want to incorporate the actual aesthetic or the actual ethos or the storytelling style. They want to incorporate the proper nouns. I tend not to go so hard on complaints about fan service, because I'm a fan and I want to be serviced. It depends on what fans are being serviced. That's true. We'll get into that in the spoiler section. We'll, we'll get into everything, I guess. Um, just incorporating proper nouns, or, or, or the kind of surface-level fan service that that represents, is fun in the moment, but it has its limits. And there are some ways that they tried to deal with that in Season 2, and so in some ways that they tried to integrate things on a deeper level that I look forward to talking about, again, in the spoiler-filled segment. To wrap up the non-spoiler segment, because we're talking a lot about things that we're going to talk about. Overall, I feel the season was a big improvement. It's much more watchable than the first season. I found that throughout. Yeah, the first season was kind of a long, hard slog. The second season was definitely not. 
And some of the new cast members, I think, brought a lot to the show. I think the level of acting quality is still pretty high. Oh, yes. Excellent. Uh, the cast that they've put together and, and the additions uh, really gelled well this year, I thought. Yeah, Tignataro was really good and criminally underused compared to how much publicity her appearance had before the series. I was expecting a lot more of her in the show. I really hope that by the time they're in production on the third season, that she's not too busy on another show. We'll get to that in the spoiler section. Sure, we'll get to the. You know, let, let's, let's go ahead and move into the spoiler section now. Do you want to? Fine. Spoilers from now on. Okay, now I can get to my intro question! I know how you love this segment most of all. We were talking about the engagement with... I don't like throwing the word canon around, but the engagement with the existing canon that Discovery dips into a lot. <laughs> uh, especially the Tos era, because there's that sort of Tos fetishization going on that led them to set the show in this era in the first place, for now anyway. They did like a whirlwind tour of so many Toast episodes this season. That some that I expected and some that I didn't. What do you think would be the least likely Toast episode for Discovery to engage with in the future? Because they already did the cage, and they separately did the menagerie, and I was like gobstops when the Galileo 7 came up. I have two possible answers to this for two very different reasons. My first answer is Turnabout Intruder. Damn, that was going to be mine! My second answer is the Mark of Gideon. Oh, that's a good one. They are not going to make a Star Trek episode that is 42 minutes of their hero captain arguing in favor of birth control and population control. That, that's not going to happen. We are not nearly as progressive now as we were in the 60s when Captain Kirk spent an entire episode arguing about women's reproductive rights. That's very true. <laughs> and th that GIF set from the Mark of Gideon makes its way around fandom pretty constantly these days. You know, for all its talk about Star Trek's values and Starfleet's values and we are Starfleet and, you know, these are the values that we uphold as Starfleet, Disco doesn't do issue episodes the way that every other Star Trek show did issue episodes. That's because you can't do an issue episode that's like part seven of a 14-part story. If you're telling a one single overarching story in 14 parts, how does part 7 suddenly become about contraceptive rights? Yeah, or, or drug addiction or something. Although I would argue they sort of did do... They touched on a lot of issues. They didn't do it in ways that really thrilled me. Really? I said before, this season seemed to be in many ways an overreaction to criticisms of the first season. And in many cases, overreactions to the dumbest criticisms of the first season that came from the worst possible people. Well, the dumbest criticisms from the worst people were the ones crying about the fact that, you know, there's a woman in the show. Well, guess what happens at the end? There's no more black woman in the lead of the show! Now it's about a white guy! I think you're confused about which part of the timeline they're following in season three. Really? Because the Discovery is gone now, Burnham is gone now, Saru is gone now, 
The, the, the woman at the helm and the woman at navigation, they're gone now. The woman that's the doctor, they're gone now. Everyone's gone now, and what's left is Captain Pike and Spock on the Enterprise. No, they all went to the year 3200, and so is the show next season. Seriously? Yeah. They're not, they're not doing a Captain Pike show. There's a petition for them to do a Captain Pike show, and a lot of people want them to do a Captain Pike show, but Disco Season 3 is not going to be the Captain Pike show. They cast an entire Captain Pike show, built an entire Enterprise set, and then got rid of the entire cast and setting of Discovery. It's gone. The cast of Discovery didn't get completely poochied. Like, they didn't, like, die on the way back to their home planet off-screen. They left, and the show is following them next year. Well, okay. That's not as bad as I thought it was then. Because I saw the finale, and I watched the entire cast of Discovery get written off of Discovery. I did see a couple of people on Twitter saying, you know, did I just watch the Discovery series finale? And a yeah. couple other people saying, God, I hope so. Which, again, is... The worst possible criticisms from the worst possible people. <sighs> also, did you notice the episode that was all about how dilithium is an old, dirty fuel type, and this spore network is a newer, cleaner fuel type that doesn't cause all the environmental destruction... But then it turns out, oh, the spore network does cause environmental destruction, and oh, we can recrystallize dilithium. Dilithium is no longer dirty. We've got clean coal. I mean dilithium. Oh God. Okay, I did not. I did not get. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, I didn't get that in real time, but I see. I see how you got there. I I got in real time because it was in the same episode where Stamets compared the spore drive over dilithium to the transition from fossil fuels to solar panels. Yes. And then in that same episode, they went on to show that the Discovery's interaction with the Spore Network was killing the Spore Network. That's what May was trying to talk to them about. And I thought that was an analogy for the havoc caused in the countries where we mine all of our rare chemicals needed to build solar panels. Wow. Yes. That was the analogy I saw there. See, I thought it was pretty clear from that episode that their traveling through the uh, mycelial network was killing the people in the mycelial network. But then they kept doing it for the rest of the season. Yeah, I expected that to be their explanation of why they had to stop traveling through the mycelial network. But then they kept doing it for the rest of the season. And then at the end, they just sort of had the Admiral order... Which, by the way, oh. at the end of this season of Discovery, they literally, in-universe, in-storyline, erased Discovery from canon. Yeah, that was not ideal. So not only did they write the entire cast of Discovery off of Discovery, they in-storyline erased it from history. And apparently they don't use the spore drive anymore just... Because it was tangentially related to the sphere data, and so no more? Well, and they'd have to find another space tardigrade and take its DNA or something. They did it once. You could get so in the weeds with the technical aspects of the limitations they put on the spore drive and then didn't and then got again or whatever. Well, you made the excellent point. Do you want to make your excellent point, or do you want me to make your excellent point? 
Uh, go ahead, remind me about my excellent point. You made the excellent point when they're, like, going through all this four-episode-long rigmarole trying to find a time crystal and charge it that last season they could time travel with the spore drive! That's true, they kind of did that accidentally. <laughs> they spent four episodes trying to get this time crystal and then figure out how to charge the fucking thing. Last season they could time travel with the spore drive! I honestly thought, the entire finale, I honestly thought the seventh signal was going to be them returning from wherever they left the Discovery. That's what I assumed they were building towards. Well, because in, in one of the uh, shorts that they aired between seasons, the Discovery is far in the future abandoned. Well, yeah, the way they incorporated the shorts was surprising and really cool. Because when you first watch the shorts, you're like, what the fuck was the point of that? But they do actually matter to the larger story. Yeah. Other than the Harry Mudd one, I'm not sure what that one accomplished. Well, that was just for fun. But I assumed... Well, and, talking about doing unlikely Toast episodes, Harry Mudd has his army of androids. They, 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 they fucking did I Mud. Do you want to talk about what they've done to Harry Mudd? Or do you want to... Do you, do you want to we're jumping all over the fucking place. Yes, we are. I assumed through that entire final episode that that's what they were building toward. That they were going to take Discovery to the future, and then they were going to receive the seventh signal and go there and find all the people from Discovery back. Of course, that was when it looked like there were like 12 people staying on Discovery with Burnham, not like a crew of hundreds. There were certain emotional beats that they wanted to hit, but then there were all sorts of other, like, emotional beats and scenes and different plot elements that they wanted to get in, and so they kind of just put them all together. Like, they had the scene where 12 people told Burnham that they were so devoted to her that they were going to launch themselves into the future with no clear way home, and then they needed to do all of the scenes with all of the other people on the ship, with the whole medical crew and the yeah. engineering crew and, 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 and everyone else, and so they, they, they kind of just tossed all of them into. Tell me if I'm wrong in this. I get the impression that that finale was rewritten pretty late in the process. It's possible. Because there's a lot of stuff in that finale that come out of nowhere and have no build-up and make no sense. Like, two episodes earlier, the Chancellor and Tyler got in a big fight about how if anyone found out he was still alive, her Chancellorship would be in ruins. And then two episodes later, he's her XO on the Klingon flagship. That was a little... Do you want to talk about the Klingon intrigue for a minute from this season? Well, then also, Saru's sister and the other Kelpians, who have been, like, nothing... For millennia, like two weeks ago, they stopped being genetically bred to be meek and docile two weeks ago, and now they're starfighters. That, I don't know if that was intended to be as disturbing as it was to me. Because they didn't show up in new Kelpian ships that they made because they're smart now. They showed up in the Ba'ul ships. So did they just, like... For, for these millennia, the Ba'ul were terrified of the elevated Kelpians or, or whatever. You know, that, that they would overrun them again and take down their whole civilization again. And that's why they kept the Kelpians down so harshly for all of these millennia. And two weeks after the Kelpians get freed, there are no Ba'ul in evidence. The Kelpians are flying their ships. <laughs> they're, they're a race, or at least there's a group of warriors now. That is disgusting. 
disturbing. Like two weeks ago, they were walking up to the floating spire and willingly dying just because that's what they did, and now all of a sudden they're starfighters good enough to fight a computer drone. That came out of nowhere. Hugh Culber's total 180 change of heart in the finale came out of fucking nowhere. Oh, God, we can do... Ooh, we could talk about their relationship, too, if oh you want Oh, my wanna. God, do you want to hear what I have to say about that relationship? Why don't you go before I do? You're going to want to respond to what I have to mm -hmm. say about that. We talked about this last season, that they killed off Hugh Culber in order to provoke an emotional response from Stamets. And immediately walked it back. In, like As and soon as that episode aired, they started walking it back. Well, we talked about how they were criticized under that kill all the gays trope. That, like, all the shows have a gay character and then they kill them, and they always kill the gay character, and that's very bad. And I talked about how, if you're going to have main cast gay characters like Stamets... Sometimes that main character's love interest is going to be killed off. The secondary character is killed off to provoke an emotional response in the main character. And when the main character is a straight dude, the one that gets killed off is always a woman. Well, when the main character is a gay dude, the one that gets killed off is going to be a gay dude. I probably said this when we talked about it before, but where it becomes a problem is when there are so few gay people that all of them just die. That's that's true, except explicitly in this case all of them didn't just die, because Stamets is still there. Stamets is the main character. Culber was the secondary character. Yeah, there's... The there's... way you use your secondary characters is to, is to create storylines for your primary characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, Garrick wasn't there to be Garrick, not for the first several seasons. He was there to provoke a reaction out of Bashir. That's what secondary characters are for. But immediately they were under this slew of criticism for, you know, kill your gays. And they immediately responded with like, no, 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 and so then they brought him back, seemingly just to avoid the criticism of kill all the gays trope. And they sort of built a storyline about how, you know, he's back now, but he's changed because he died. And so he feels differently and he's not the same person he was. And so his interpersonal relationships are broken and he sort of needs to figure out who he is. He can't just slot back into who he used to be, which is an interesting story to tell if it wasn't like pretty obvious that they were using that story to write him out of the show because he was supposed to be gone already when he died, but they brought him back to avoid this internet criticism, and now they're writing him out in a way that they don't fill into the kill your gays trope. Except all of a sudden, like, out of nowhere, he's like, whoops, I'm in love with you again. Which is another thing that smacks, to me, of a very, very late rewrite. And that scene in particular in the finale when he declares his renewed love was it, was... it was an emotional scene, and Wilson Cruz is a great actor and all. And yeah. it, was it was interesting to see him playing his character in a more aggressive way earlier in the season. Yeah, uh, he, he did the material all season of, you know, I'm different now, I don't feel the same, I can't be the same person. 
that is a good story, and and he performed the hell out of it, right up until the finale when he had to do a complete 180 for no reason. Yeah, I wish that story had been fleshed out more. I wish it hadn't just been, like, five minutes at a time in, like, four episodes spaced out over the second half of the season. Mm. And also the fact that he declared his renewed love for Stamets as Stamets was falling into a coma and so could not participate in the scene was, again, slightly disturbing. (laughs) You know, that whole storyline just screamed for... It screamed for a scene like Michael Burnham and Ash Tyler got toward the end of season one. Where they confronted each other about, you know, you deceived me, you tried to kill me, well, you're avoiding me because you don't want to deal with emotions. They had a scene where where they dealt with their relationship, and she told him, you know, I, I, you know, when I see you, I see the Klingon, I can't deal with this, we can't move forward. And it was a scene that really dealt with the plot that had come up between them. Yes. And Stamets and Culber, their whole storyline was screaming for a scene like that. Right after he came back from the dead, for Dr. Kolber to say, you know, I can't do our relationship. It's something other than, you know, that one scene in the quarters where he tipped over a plate of food and that was their big separation. And the scene in the finale where he suddenly decided he loved them again. They, they needed, like, a, a long, serious, adult conversation scene. They, they needed two of them. Alternatively, they could have just left him dead. And let Stamets deal with the death of his loved one. Yeah, well, you know I'm not a fan of that. (laughs) Like I said, the role of a secondary character is to serve a role in stories that feature the primary character. But that's just another example. That one is not the worst criticism from the worst people on the internet. Like the please erase discovery from history and canon. But that's another instance where I feel like they reacted to criticisms of the first season. Even the tone of this season. The tone of this season was so different from the first season. It it seemed inappropriate. Like, everyone is joking and snarking at each other all the time. Tilly's neuroses are, like, way worse, and she's just way more babbly than she was even last season. Like, they needed to lighten up the tone a little, but... it didn't have to go that far. It was, like, weird and inappropriate at times. Like, these were supposed to be professionals. See, I appreciated the fact that they lightened it. I don't really... I didn't really think they went uh, too far in that respect. I think it... I think... I think a lot of things about Discovery feel off. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, because when I watch Discovery, I, I really want to like it, in part because the worst people on the internet hate it. And <laughs> and in part because, you know, it's Star Trek. I'm a fan of Star Trek. And, you know, I, I want to like it, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. And I feel this disconnect from it. And I keep trying to think about why that is. We caught up on this season late. So I was spoiled for most of the plot elements. But not, like, the characterization and, and the way that people interacted and stuff. And so I said on Twitter uh, when we started watching this that, like, I kind of feel like Discovery feels like the melodrama is turned up to 11 just because old Star Trek never let its characters feel their feelings for more than 40 minutes. (laughs) 
So now that we're in the golden age of television or whatever, and they're trying to do Star Trek in the age of Game of Thrones and the Breaking Bads and, and all of the golden age shows, you know, people are feeling their feelings forever. You know, the Spock, like, psychoanalyzes Burnham for, like... As soon as Spock gets to the ship and gets cogent and everything, he's he's psychoanalyzing Burnham's guilt complexes and, and, and you know, her shouldering the burden for, for everyone else. And he does this many times just to make sure we get the point. And I feel like maybe your reaction to some of the camaraderie of, of, of the crew and some of the neuroses and things comes from a similar place. Because this is an, an, an era in which a Star Trek show can let its characters be cynical. And the thing about old Star Trek, for the most part, is it didn't really have cynical characters. It didn't have meta characters. Not really. DS9 was a little looser than that because it had a lot of non-Starfleet people who could comment more on like how goofy the humans were. But a lot of it didn't have that level of snark and that level of cynicism that you have in Discovery. Which, in Season 2 in particular, stands in stark contrast to someone like Captain Pike. Because Captain Pike comes on the ship and he is not snarky, he is not cynical, he is straight-laced. He has, he has a sense of humor, but he is very straight-laced and pretty cornball. I actually really liked Captain Pike this season. I, you're probably going to have a whole thing, and we'll get to that in a second. But I feel like they used Captain Pike really well as a contrast to Lorca's role in the first season, Foremost. Which, again, he says as soon as he gets to the ship, because you have to get the point, and the show has to tell you what the point is. I really like the way that he starts giving the standard Star Trek speeches. You know, they've always had the Kirk speech, the Picard speech. Everyone had everyone had big speeches all the time in Star Trek. And and Pikes are kind of cornball, but that's what the character is. You know, he 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 does all these things about how Starfleet is a promise. And when I hear stuff like that, I I'm I look for someone on the ship to hear, like, a shipwide announcement, attention all crew, Starfleet is a promise, and go, oh, God, what are they doing now? <laughs> and that's Tignataro's character. That, 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 Jet Reno is that exact character. That kind of element you, you feel a little more from, from some of the other characters, too, but it stands in contrast, I think, to, to Captain Pike, who is, you know, a bit of a cornball, but unshakably moral in a way that your Star Trek captain has to be. And he's a mentor, first and foremost, just like J.J.'s Captain Pike. I was going to say, I felt like this Pike was much closer to the Bruce Greenwood Captain Pike than it was to the Jeffrey Hunter Captain Pike. I think it's extrapolating a lot from the Jeffrey Hunter Captain Pike, because we only get the one look at him, Technically. I mean, this show also does the menagerie, so there's there's that as well, but... Yeah, I didn't like that at all, by the way. Because they, they basically transformed his injury that happens just before the menagerie. They've transformed it from a heroic act to save the lives of his students into a predestination paradox. Where, like, 
instead of seeing the students in danger and knowing that he could be poisoned by the radiation and going the hell with it, I have to help them. Instead, he goes, well, this is the price I agreed to pay for that time, Crystal. Well, no, it kind of transfers that heroic moment. The heroic moment is now when he knows what is in his future and he accepts it anyway because of the mission and because he made a promise. And Starfleet is a promise. I thought it kind of diluted that heroic moment of his. Like, before he subjected himself to that because there were people in danger and he wanted to rescue them. Now he's agreed beforehand to subject himself to that because he really needs this time crystal to send the sphere data into the future to protect it from the control program. Well, I think the characterization is more worth paying attention to than the exact mechanics of the plot. Because the exact mechanics of the plot are not always great. You can, re I mean, again, you can really get in the weeds with this stuff. But I think the character moment for Pike, when he says he can't just give up because of a future he did not foresee for himself, I think that really shows you what the character is and shows you what the show thinks is an upright, upstanding, moral person. And that, I think, is important. I think that's a really good moment of characterization for the show. It also sort of provokes one of their inevitable moments of anachronism. Because he has this vision of himself, and it's like, you know, Arium gets to be this cool cyborg lady, and I get to be a rubber head clamshelled between two dumpster lids. Yeah, well... Again, in terms of plot mechanics, there's there's stuff you have to kind of glaze over in, in, in terms of, you know, that particular radiation or that particular injury or whatever particularly happened to him versus, you know, Arium going down in a shuttle crash and getting augmented or, or Detmer getting burned or something or whatever happened to her. See, that's... Uh, we're going around in circles now. I suppose. That's the other thing that really cheesed me about the ending, is that, you know, all of these characters are now... I mean, I guess you say they're going to be back in, like, the year 12,000 or wherever they went to. But it's like, we spent two years following Tilly trying to get into command training so she could be a captain one day. What's her storyline now? Even at the very end, we didn't get to see Saru finally made captain. He decided to put that off. It's like, none of the storylines that we've been following, none of these characters we've been following, they're just gone. Well, do you want to talk about the stuff we know they have to do because of announcements they've already made? Like what? Like the fact that Empress Georgia was on the Discovery when it went to the year 3200, but she's in a spin-off that's happening in two years. Really? Do, do you want to talk about the Section 31 spin-off? Do you want to talk about Section 31? That, Jesus! That doesn't contradict my point that that entire ending was a very, very late rewrite. Well, it at least means that by the end of Season 3, they gotta at least get her back. Unless her spinoff is, is running Section 31 in the year 3200. <laughs> Which, oh, good, good god, good god. <sighs> what the fuck have they done to Section 31? Like, apparently now it's part of Starfleet? 
that, that everyone knows about. That everyone knows about? And Starfleet admirals give them orders, and they give Starfleet captains orders? I really want to like this show. I hope that comes across when we do these shows. I, I desperately want to love this show. Also, Cornwell literally describes the admiral that works with Section 31 as one of the logic extremists, like the ones that blew up the school where Burnham went. But she is a Starfleet admiral, despite being a member of this terrorist group. And tried to kill Ambassador Sarek last season. Like, I didn't know they had, like, members of terrorist groups as admirals in Starfleet. That, 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 that doesn't really seem right. I mean, I know there's plenty of Christo-fascists in the American military, but Starfleet is supposed to be better than that. Starfleet is supposed to be better than a lot of things, isn't it? And, and like, I get that part of the point of Season 1 was, like, you have to fight to be better than all these things, and our heroes on this crew are fighting to be better. And then this year, they get Captain Pike parachuted in, and he is better, and he tries to help people be better. But, oh god, oh god. Okay, Section 31. In Deep Space Nine, Section 31 was... Unknown. Yes, but I'm trying to talk about, like, meta-elements. It was a way of introducing darker elements without placing any onus on Starfleet or the Federation or, or our heroes, generally. It was a comment, or, or a deconstruction, maybe, of Dr. Bashir's James Bond fantasies. It was the show's way of showing that, you know, he had these happy, fun-time fantasies, but when you do spy stuff in the real world, it's terrible! And you do abysmal things for corrupt organizations! And, and so, like, lightly sprinkled into the latter seasons of Deep Space Nine, all of those elements worked. I feel. There, there are people who aren't a fan of it, but I feel that in those ways it worked. Frankly, I think there was too much of it in the later seasons of DS9. By the end, maybe, yeah, sure. And then, since then, it's been, like, a cool, edgy thing to have show up sometimes. Like, in the last season of Enterprise, they revealed yeah. that one of the dudes on the ship was a Section 31 agent this whole time! That's really amazing, considering Section 31 is named after Section 31 of the Federation Charter, which wasn't signed until after Enterprise ended! Yeah, well, again, plot elements, there are all sorts of explanations if you want to get in the weeds! That's uh, not the weeds! That's the very foundations! And then, you know, there was a vague nod to it in Into Darkness, just as, you know, a cover for admirals doing bad shit. That was just a name drop. Basically. And now in Discovery, it's like the whole basis of the running storyline for this season. It's the adversary and the big bad. And in the middle of that, they announced that they're doing a Section 31 spin-off show starring Michelle Yeoh. In Discovery, it's like a branch. Yes. It's like there's the Starfleet Service and the Merchant Marine and the Corps of Engineers in Section 31. It's just, it's just another branch of Starfleet. Every time I see an interview with Alex Kurtzman, I think along the same lines that you do about misplaced priorities and responding to the wrong criticisms, right? Because he's always talking about, 
you know, people say we're not matching up with canon. Well, keep watching. We're going to do it. And then at the end of this season, he almost did like a victory lap going, See? That's why Spock never mentioned Michael. We explained it now. Can you explain why neither Spock nor Sarek nor Michael ever mentioned Cybok at all during this season? That was a rather glaring canon omission. Shouldn't Cybok have been there when Michael Burnham showed up? I don't know the exact timeline on that, but they were doing the cage and the menagerie and everything. They did not want to do the final frontier. It actually would have fit. Cybok in the storyline about the Red Angel would have fit fucking perfectly. And in terms of Sarek being eternally disappointed that his children show emotion... <laughs> I mean, say what you want about about things that the show does differently than all the other shows. Disco still knows that Sarek is the worst father in the galaxy. Yeah. And that no one in this entire family is capable of stating their intentions and their feelings. They're Vulcans. Michael isn't. Amanda isn't. So, anyway, back to Alex Kurtzman and Section 31. I, I saw another interview bit recently where he admitted, you know, a, a lot of people say that our Section 31 is doesn't look like Section 31 that we know, but that's a story that we're going to tell and we're going to get there. Oh, God. No, just tell your fucking story, God fucking! <laughs> Don't make your story all about something everybody knows suddenly vanishes from everybody's mind because some admiral ordered it to no longer be canon. Tell a story about starships and nebulas and explorations and moral choices and, and, and conflicts and interpersonal strife and, and, and Tilly becoming a great captain. And tell that story! Don't tell these fucking stories about Spock advising the admiral to order Michael Burnham to no longer be canon. The order of the spore drive to no longer be canon. That's not a fucking interesting story. On that note, would you like to take a break and hear a little about our uh, partner shows here on the Place to Be Nation? We'll be right back after this. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Place to be Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceToBeNation wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation Pop Feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offered tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. 
brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placetobination.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySubation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. We had a busy week on the Place to Be Nation pop feed with a little something for everyone. Ben Morse and Russell Sellers close out 1970 on a new Marvel Age masterclass. Jennifer Smith welcomes in Todd Webber to watch Yoga Hosers on this month's Freak Out Drive-In. JT Rosero, Peter Winston, and Don Carrera pay tribute to the show Veep as it winds down its run and even got a shout-out from Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Twitter. Andy Atherton and Russell Sellers gave a look at Forgetting Sarah Marshall on this episode of Laugh-In Theater. The hard-traveling fanboys head off the page with a review of Marvel Ultimate Alliance. And speaking of Nick and Greg, the hard-traveling fanboys, coming up at the end of May, they will be wrapping up their Hard Travelers for Hire series with a special giant-sized edition of the podcast, where Greg and Nick will be joined by past guests for a retrospective look back at the highs and lows of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date, and they want your opinions. After you've seen Endgame, send in your full ranking of the MCU movies from 1 to 22 to nickd at placetobenation.com. The full composite rankings for Place to Be Nation will be revealed on the show, so get your ballots in to make your voice heard. Ballots are due May 16th. That's nickd at placetobenation.com. Meanwhile, over at the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, Scott JT and John D'Amato gave a super-sized deep dive into WrestleMania 5 on episode 519 of the Place to Be podcast. In the third episode of Row 1, Seat 1, Benzani chats it up with O'Shea Edwards and then breaks down the Making Towns classic and the WrestleMania weekend Backcraft Wrestling Show. In a new Making Towns with Friends, Steve welcomes in Kelly Jean to talk about her first live wrestling experience. And we continue to dive into the vault to bring you classic episodes of Where the Big Boys Play, starring Chad and Parv. In this installment, Parv, Chad, and Solomon finish their look at Star Arcade 1987. Check out the Place to Be social media pages, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and the message board at bigelow34.proboards.com for information on joining the greatest WWE pay-per-view and TV match ever project. Uh, get in on the conversation today and start researching your list. There's a lot to research if you actually want to make an informed list, which I will never be able to do in my human life. Be sure to check out placefination.com as things are getting back up and running with plenty of projects and reviews to come. We will be picking that up in the days and weeks ahead, including us, picking back up on the Star Trek feed. We're not going to wait six months after the finale to actually watch it and, and, and talk about it this time. Scott, how do you want to get back into disco here? Do you believe... That the entire storyline of Control taking control of Section 31 and having to be stopped by the rest of Starfleet is an admonishment on the threat posed by self-driving cars.
Are you saying they were doing an issue story after all? I mean, it's not like the self-driving starship that uh, Burnham and Spock wound up on, like, actively crashed into anything because the piloting software was buggy. You know, if they really wanted to do an issue story on digital encroachments into our lives in the modern day, I mean, Star Trek isn't really going to do a show about social media and the various hellscapes that's put us in. But you'd think it would be some sort of story about privacy. Like, maybe that would look more like Minority Report, except the telepaths are control. What, and, like Arium like, literally uploading her memories into the computer? Well, they didn't make that a, they didn't, they didn't make that an issue of privacy or anything. That, that was only a, a story device to show us some of her memories and and drum up sympathy for her in the 30 minutes before they killed off the character. Which, I don't get why long-form serialized shows still do this. <laughs> they, they did the same thing in the first season of Luke Cage. Spoilers for Luke Cage, I guess. Where, as soon as you start getting the actual backstory for one of the characters on that show, you know, oh yeah, he's dying this week. For all that this is you know, planned out and serialized and everything. And they have used the ensemble a little more this year, but they didn't start giving Arium a backstory or a sympathetic character literally until the episode where they killed her off. They'd used her a little more this season, but it was more like she has more than two speaking lines in the first half of the season this time. They tried to give a little more characterization to Owo, and they tried to use Detmer a little more. I'm not sure they really got there in, in, in terms of making them, like, fleshed-out, sympathetic characters. But, I don't know, they're trying at least. Can I tell you how very uncomfortable I was with the nickname Owo? Okay. Like, on the one hand, I understand they're trying to display camaraderie or whatever... But on the other hand, why is it only the woman with the African name that's the one nobody can pronounce, and so they have to shorten it? Fair. In terms of the ensemble as well, I think that scene with Pike in the season premiere, where he literally asks everyone to do a roll call where they tell us again what their names are, was very meta. Because... <laughs> Did you remember... Because most of these people were set dressing in season one. Did you remember Reese or Bryce? I remember those people were there. Yes, I heard those... In the background. I heard those names called out in season one, but, like, they had no characters, and they still have no characters. It's just they were in the more scenes and got a couple more speaking lines, which I suppose is progress. I mean, it is an ensemble show, though. It, it's It's just... The structure of that ensemble is, is, is a little different for a Star Trek show, which isn't necessarily bad, it just takes some getting used to. Where, on all the other Star Trek shows, the main ensemble was the bridge crew. Basically. And there are some other, like, recurring guest stars. Where, on Discovery, you know, there are bridge crew who are basically guest stars and ascended extras in some ways. And there are some other characters who... Like, why is Tilly always on the bridge? She's an ensign. Why wouldn't there be ensigns on the bridge? Uh, I guess. So that, that takes a little getting used to, but I suppose there's progress on filling in the rest of the ship a little bit. And Jet Reno helps with that, too. 
the fact that she never showed up, though, was weird. Like, what was it, like, five, six, seven episodes where she wasn't there, and then just all of a sudden she happens to walk into the room? Like, oh yeah, she's she's just been hanging around the whole time? Well, this show doesn't really do as much with the engineering crew as, as some of the other shows did. You know, Stamets is there, but as we discussed in our sh- in our episodes about season one, he's not the chief engineer. He doesn't fix the warp core or anything. And now they have Jet Reno, who is an engineer and is the one who fixes the warp core. But the show isn't interested in showing you Jet Reno fixing the warp core. So she kind of flits in and out as, you know, if, if, they, if they need a particular engineer on something or if there's some character beat that they want her for. Which, by the way... Shall we have a note on representation again? Because toward the end of the season, Jet Reno suddenly sprouts a dead wife. Yeah. And when when your only explicitly mentioned representation of a lesbian character is a widow and a dead wife, that's also not great. But wait, they didn't even kill the wife. Sure, yeah, they did off-screen. The wife was never a character. She's just a piece of backstory. Now you're not allowed to reference anyone who ever lived who was gay? I don't think you understand what I'm saying. You're saying you're saying anyone that they reference who is no longer alive has to be straight. I don't think That's you understand what, you're what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they decide a character is lesbian and suddenly her partner has to be dead. Well, yeah, because they just went through a war, and apparently she's going off to the year 12,000 at the end of the season. So what's the use of a living partner? Look, if you're going to have gay characters, they're going to have relations, secondary characters associated with them who are also gay. And dead. And dead. Or alive. All of of the secondary ones dead. What about Burnham's parents? They're dead. Or they were? Possibly. Thought so. Burnham's father's dead. That shows that this, you know, this show is just playing into kill your dads. And Cybok apparently is nowhere to be seen. This show is just playing into kill your laughing Vulcans. And his dog. Yeah, there aren't any dogs on the show. Star Trek used to have a dog in it. I mean, that's sort of the fundamental way you build characters, is you give them backstories. And the gay character's backstory is going to involve her relations with other gay people. Yeah, and when, and when an overwhelming majority of queer characters in all media have their relationships involving partners dying, it's not great, is what I'm saying. Yeah, but... That's the backstory for all characters. You have a character, you want to give them a backstory, you want to show them in a relationship, but you don't want to actually have another character and have them be in a relationship so that they can interact with other characters without being burdened by being in a relationship. So you give them a dead partner. You do that with all characters. You're saying every other character has a dead wife out there? Cisco, dead wife? Kira? Dead family? I mean, Hank... Well... 
the war, way, the Worf dead family. I mean, the way media present... Picard, dead brother? The way various media present male grief is also not ideal. <laughs> Troy, dead father? Riker, dead mother? Yar, dead, pa dead parents? Data, dead father? Jordy's mother dies in, in TNG? It's, it's just a character beat. And if you're going to have gay characters, then you're going to have gay characters subject to these character beats. I mean, if the only reason you bring on a gay character is to kill them, that's one thing. But if you're going to have gay characters, if, if gay characters on shows is going to become normal, then gay characters are going to become subject to all of the normal character beats that all other characters are also subject to. And the one has to go with the other. And, and, and the fact is that they didn't kill off their gay characters. They didn't kill Stamets. They didn't kill Reno. Hell, they even brought Culber back to life just, just, just to avoid internet criticism. If gay characters on shows is going to become normal, as it should, then gay characters are going to be subject to all of the normal character beats that characters are subject to. And a big part of that is the dead family member, or partner, or sister, or child, or whatever. That, that, that's how... That's one of the main ways to give characters backstories and, like, character motivations is dead family members. And it's one of the ways to, pro 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 to propel characters down new character motivations is to kill a family member. How many family members did we see die in Star Trek shows? Kirk's brother died during the show. Spock's brother died in a movie. Picard's brother died in a movie. Geordi's mom died on the show. The trope of the tragic gay romance has a long history in pulp novels where gay characters were only allowed to be mentioned if all of their relationships were shown to be tragic, to emphasize the idea that being queer is in itself a tragic state of being. That trope has held in decades of writing. And that is an essential context for the decision that writers make in modern shows. In a context that dead fathers do not have. In a context that dead brothers and mothers do not have. Which is why it sticks out more to people who are particularly sensitive to it, for good reason. So you can list all of the characters who died on or off screen if you want, but it doesn't remove that context. I still say that part of that context is the extreme rarity of gay characters. And if gay characters are going to become ubiquitous, then they're going to have a wide variety of things happen to them. Including dead partners. Well, so far Disco is batting a thousand on that one. Well, I suppose Empress Giorgio doesn't have a tragic dead lover in her backstory. <laughs> Probably many dead lovers, but none of them were tragic to e her. Exactly. <laughs> which, spe speaking of which, I want to talk about Giorgio a little more. Can I just, go, going back to this, I've been trying to look this up without making a lot of clacky noises on the mic. Uh, Janet Reno appeared in episode 1, episode 4, and then episode 12. So yeah, when she shows up in episode 12, it is kind of a, wait, she's just been hanging around somewhere all season? Yeah, she's she's been, you know, in engineering or whatever. She's been around. Not 
So not, there is no visual evidence of that. Well, just because she's not a bridge officer and so hasn't had two lines every three episodes like Lieutenant Reese. <laughs> so anyway, Empress Giorgio, Commander Giorgio, or whatever she is in Section 31 now, what do you think is Giorgio's agenda? I have no earthly idea. Entertain herself? That was the one that made the most sense to me. Like, I don't think she wants to take over the galaxy the way she did with the Terran Empire. Because it took her whole lifetime to do that. And if she wanted to like be in charge of the Federation or whatever, that would be so boring to her. Because the Federation is so touchy-feely and gentle and noble. Yeah. Well, Section 31 isn't. She, she could try to take them over. And she seemed to be angling toward that by taking out all of her superiors within Section 31. Well, I, I think she just preternaturally stabs anyone she comes in contact with. <laughs> Which is why she had such trouble with the uh, Borgified Leland at the end of the season, because she couldn't just stab him. Said the scorpion to the frog. <laughs> yes! Although, the Terran Empire is by nature Terran, right? And so the Federation for Empress Giorgio, I think, would be not only a little too touchy-feely, but a little too multicultural. And you don't see a whole lot of non-humans in Section 31, do you? I'm trying to remember, were there extras on the Section 31 bridge? I mean, did they show Section 31 officers other than Giorgio, Volk, and uh, whatever that dude's name is? Control? <laughs> uh, I think they had some extras in the, in the earlier episodes when there were actually people on the ship. Uh, I think they were humans. I, I could be wrong. There could have been a couple background extras who weren't. But I mean, the admiral over Section Thirty One was Vulcan. There was a there was well that was part of the whole Starfleet cooperation slash oversight slash whatever that relationship is. You know, because that was a Starfleet admiral. I mean, I got the sense that Giorgio is just like antagonizing people because it's fun because she has nothing to do in this universe. Yeah. And yet she's getting a spinoff show in twenty twenty. Or whenever. They've announced so many new Star Trek shows. <laughs> like, they're going to be making at least four shows, plus continuing the shorts. The Picard show is coming the end of 2019. 2020 is season three of Discovery. After season three of Discovery is the first season of the Section 31 spinoff. What is season three of Discovery? Is that just going to be, like, Voyager, but dumber? Because they don't even have the effort to go home to guide them. Well, it depends how much they want to tie into the uh, Calypso short. I mean, that short had the Discovery far in the future abandoned, and the dude who landed on it was involved in a war against the Vidresh. Yeah. And so, if you want to do a whole season of the Discovery finding the Far Future Federation at war with whoever... Yeah, um, but that Discovery had been abandoned for another thousand years. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how, how exactly that ties in. I mean, there's a compulsive need by these people to tie everything into everything else. Yeah, a little so, too much. So, we'll see about that. I hate talking about this in terms of meta-information that we have from press releases about upcoming spin-offs, and not just, like, here are the characters in the show, are they interesting or not. You know? I don't know. All this meta-information from press releases from you is the only reason I have to believe that there will be a Discovery Season 3. 
or that, you know, Discovery Season 3, following the adventures of Captain Pike on the Starship Enterprise. No, it wasn't, it wasn't a backdoor pilot for a Pike show. It, really? No. No. I think it was. <laughs> I saw a backdoor pilot for a Pike show. They have so Actually, many... Actually, no, wait, you're right, you're right. There's nothing backdoor about that pilot they, for a Pike show. They have so many other spinoffs happening. They're doing Disco Season 3, they're doing the Patrick Stewart show, they're doing the Section 31 show starring Michelle Yeoh, and maybe Shazad Latif if they get back into the same time zone. There are two different cartoons that they're going to be doing. There is so much. How could they add another show just because people liked Anson Mount as Pike and they built a bunch of Enterprise sets? They'll do whatever they can to get people to actually subscribe to this cockamamie CBS streaming service. I mean, subscribing for just one show is a pretty big ask, even for us. Yeah. So if they've got five or six or ten, that makes it easier to talk yourself into actually paying for it. Well, the idea is, when they were announcing all these spinoffs in the first place, was that at some point they're going to have some show or another going on year-round to keep people subscribed. <laughs> You know, either I guess they can just have them going literally all year round, or they can have, like, a month in between or something, or maybe this month there's only a short, but it's too much effort to cancel the subscription for one month, so you'll hang on until the next cartoon season comes on. What are the cartoons about? Um, one of them is going to be on All Access, the other one's going to be on Nickelodeon. Uh, the Nickelodeon one is going to be like an explicit children's show. I'm not sure any... An explicit children's show? Kel uh, horror, I know. The one on CBS All Access is going to be a uh, Lower Decks-like sitcom cartoon. Mm. It's literally called Star Trek Lower Decks. Trying to do a Star Trek sitcom that could easily go very badly. Maybe. Also, I'm picturing an explicit children's show. I was just looking up because I wanted to, to be sure. The uh, Lower Decks show uh, is going to be a half-hour adult animated comedy from uh, the head writer of Rick and Morty. Hmm. Uh, talking about fandoms. I've never watched Rick and Morty, but I know that they have some amazingly terrible fans. Much like Star Trek apparently does. Much like everything. I mean... God, the Star Trek fan discourse, all the exploits of the Rick and Morty fandom, the Star Wars fan discourse. I mean, I want to go a little bit into that comparison, too, with, with George O. You know, wondering, you know, if they were trying to soften her a little bit because she's going to be the star of a show in the future. And that just reminded me that, you know, redeeming space fascists is all the rage in sci-fi discourse now. Maybe I'm just too lefty for the premise of this show. But the Giorgio spinoff show is literally going to, literally, metaphorically, going to be the exploits of Space Hitler working for the Space CIA. I don't agree with either of those. Well, her genocides are more than any in human history could compare to, I suppose. She's not Space Hitler, she's Space Augustus. I mean, the Augustus was literally in her name, I guess. But, I mean, if the exploits of some of the more bloodthirsty Roman emperors were moved forward in time a little bit, how many of them would be Hitler? You can't just call everybody Hitler. Hitler was a very specific kind of evil person. 
Hitler very specifically stoked racial and ethnic hatred to advance his power base and then explicitly tried to exterminate a people for the express purpose of exterminating them. Not even exterminating them because we want that piece of land or exterminating them because we want the mine that they control. Just exterminating them because we want them dead. That is a specific type of evil that you can't just blanket apply to all dictators throughout history. I mean, Roman emperors performed acts of genocide. But they didn't do it because they hated the Gauls so much that they wanted every Gaul to be dead. They did it because they wanted the land the Gauls lived on. They did it because they wanted the natural resources the Gauls had control of. They didn't try to exterminate them, they just tried to break their power and seize their lands. It was still a genocide, but it wasn't a Hitler genocide. The, the things the American government did to the Native Americans... Those were acts of genocide, but it wasn't a Hitler-style genocide. We didn't try to exterminate Native Americans just because we wanted every Native American gone. We tried to exterminate Native Americans because we wanted their land. Those acts and policies were literally inspirational to Hitler. Like, it's literally in his book. (laughs) There is a fundamental difference, I feel, between killing millions of a group of people because you want to seize their lands or their possessions or you want to break their power so that they can never pose a threat to you, and explicitly trying to kill every single one of them so that they will be dead. I think that is a fundamental difference. They're both genocide, but that is a fundamental difference. Yes, in precise goals and sometimes tactics, uh, I suppose. I'm thinking more on a moral level. That presenting a character who is a genocidal fascist in general terms, and then, you know, trying to work things around to make them the lead of your television show. It requires you to not think too hard about what the Emperor must have done in her home universe. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable. You know, the fact that she, like, served Saru up as dinner. Yes. And it's not like everyone is suddenly getting along with her. There's still distrust and everything, but but the way that the show presents it is more along the lines of Burnham rolling her eyes at her and, like, keeping her phaser on her a little longer than everyone else does. What raises an interesting question that I was thinking of is, what do you do with Giorgio? Like, now that she's here and she exists, what do you do with her? Like, if you're Starfleet. I mean, okay, there are factions within Starfleet that are like, ooh, we can exploit her amoral, genocidal ways to, like, advance our own agenda because we're also amoral. Yeah. But, like, if you are a pike, idealistic Starfleeter, what do you do with Giorgio now? She's too dangerous to just, like, let her be, but there's no morality in, like, arresting her and confining her just because of who she is. Well, just because of who she is, like, she is a perpetrator of mass murders. That's not like... Oh, yes, but not in your jurisdiction. (laughs) Okay, maybe... You you have no witnesses who will testify. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe you couldn't technically convict, but, like... But that's what I'm saying. Knowing that's in her background, what do you do with her? I mean, she hasn't committed any crimes in your universe. But if you let her free, you know what she will do. So what do you do? 
Oh, God. You know what I'm picturing now? You haven't seen The Good Place. But part of the first season of The Good Place is a, uh, a philosopher personally taking a dirtbag under his wing to try to make her better in some amorphous way. And, like, what you're talking about with George O makes you picture the worst version of that. <laughs> <laughs> like, the worst version of that is a genocidal fascist being mentored by, like, an upstanding moral person like Captain Pike until she understands ethics. That's like the worst buddy cop series ever. Yeah, well, I'm anticipating the Section 31 show is going to be uh, uh, Giorgio and Ash Tyler, the worst buddy cop show ever. I mean, I don't know exactly what form that show is going to take yet. And it could be that it has something really interesting to say about all these moral quandaries. But, given recent events, <laughs> you know, given the way Disco has, has framed these issues, I think it's much more interested in having cool epic moments. Cool epic characters doing cool epic things. And and it'll kind of string those things together in whatever way references the most Star Trek episodes. <laughs> but what it's interested in is those moments. And some of those moments are great. Uh, I didn't think they were as good this year. I mean, Pike gave a lot of speeches this year. Saru gave a few speeches this year. Nothing this year was anywhere near the same level as Discovery is not Lorca's. Discovery is ours. That's still probably the best speech they've had on the show. Oh, yes. by a mile. Yeah, yeah, it's gotta be. What are the speeches gonna be like on the Section 31 show? <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to keep harping on this in our Discovery podcast, but I, I'm trying to understand what this show is gonna look like and how it could possibly keep from presenting a genocidal fascist working for the space CIA. How do they do that without presenting it as cool? I also want to dispute your characterization of Section 31 as the space CIA, except... This season it was. This season, Section 31 was not nearly as unsupervised and untethered to the rest of the government as it was depicted in DS9. I've been making that comparison for a while, like whenever Section 31 comes up, and, you know, sometimes it's less reasonable because we've all heard of the CIA. And I'm not sure we have a great understanding of what the CIA does in real time. Like, all of the South American coups and assassinations and everything, I'm not sure we knew about that in real time. But we know what the CIA is. That's true. But this season, everyone knows what Section 31 is. Even yeah. if they don't necessarily know that control is, you know, an AI run amok that wants to destroy all sentient life, because I guess that's what AIs want to do? In general. I don't, mean, nobody programmed the three laws of robotics into control. Uh, well, maybe instead of reciting Alice in Wonderland every other episode, Burnham and Spock could have read iRobot. <laughs> also, it's amazing how in, like, 15 years, Spock and Sarek are still going to be exchanged and will have not have spoken in 30 years. Well, as we know, no one in this family has any emotional maturity. It's rare for Vulcans to have emotional maturity anyway. <laughs> that, that was part of what I was wondering about in terms of how they would present Spock this season. Because doing a prequel, until they go to the year 3200s, when they don't have to do prequels anymore, but they're still doing a prequel for, for this season. 
And that requires them to present a Spock who does not have the emotional maturity that he didn't achieve until Star Trek 3 or 4. You know, set, what, 25, 30 years after this? 35? I made that note somewhere in one of the first Spock episodes. It was like, okay, Spock's storyline this season is the same one as Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 4. Well... Also, I continue to be fascinated by this because the actor playing Spock is one year younger than the than uh, Sonico Martin Green, which means he is eleven years younger than Amanda's actress, <sighs> and eighteen years younger than Sarek. Oh, when Sarek was eighteen, he was uh, married to the Vulcan priestess who gave birth to Cybok, right? <laughs> of course. I'm actually kind of angry about this now. Cyborg would have fit so perfectly into a series about searching for a red angel. Yeah, well, they'll do a whirlwind tour of, of previous episodes and movies, but they don't want to touch Star Trek V. Like, there, there, there are bits of canon they'll jam in there, and there are bits that they'll avoid. Also, in Star Trek V, they didn't need to do a whole story arc about why Spock never told anyone about Cybok before. Spock never told anyone about Cybok before because Spock doesn't tell anyone about anything! <laughs> you know, they didn't need a whole scene to say, and we shall never speak of Michael Burnham again. He doesn't tell anyone about anything! Like a journey to Babel, they didn't know he had parents! Yes! <laughs> I mean, that could have, you know, stand to reason, but you know. I thought the characterization and the use of Captain Pike this season was successful. I think it added something to the show. I'm not sure about Spock. What do you think in terms of what Spock meant to the show? Well, there's so much unexplained, which again I think points to a late stage rewrite of the finale. Like they made a big deal about how the crystal would burn out after one trip and that's why they would be trapped in the future, except she was able to make seven trips to make the seven signals. Except they never explained why the signals all showed up at once before she made the seven signals. Yeah, that... And they also never explained how Spock received the Seven Signals two months earlier. And I was very uncomfortable with when they were talking about his dyslexia. And Burnham said, it's not a disability because it enabled you to receive this signal. Mm. Like, it's not an illness. It makes you especially artistic or brilliant or whatever. It's just very uncomfortable trope. Yes, that that too, that's, that's another very uncomfortable trope, absolutely. For what it's worth, and it may not be worth much, I believe the explanation was that the time crystal only allowed one jump of the magnitude required to take a starship through rather than one person in a suit. Mm. I mean, you could argue that's a cheap, arbitrary explanation, but I believe that was in the show. Well, if you want cheap, arbitrary explanations, how come Discovery couldn't lower her shields to beam Spock aboard, but the Enterprise could lower their shields to beam Spock aboard? Because we know Spock goes back to the Enterprise. Also, why was it so very important to close that one single blast door? The torpedo still blew up in the middle of the saucer section. Are you telling me that that one four-foot opening was the difference between destroying the entire rest of the ship and only destroying a chunk out of the saucer section? Yeah, that whole plot element was a little awkward. Then again, they did kill off Admiral Cornwell, so there's nothing of Discovery left to exist in canon. 
Yeah, I think that was done out of a sense of... I think that was done out of a sense among the writers that something that has been presented as important to the viewers should be lost in the big climactic battle. We lost and, the entire crew of the Discovery. Well, no, they're filming a new season soon. I keep mentioning this. And of course, Captain Pike now knows that he has plot armor. <laughs> I mean, did he think the torpedo would, like, misfire or something if he was in the room? Uh, who knows? Okay, I hate talking about this stuff in terms of believability, because all fiction is equally fictional. Everyone's got their own flying snowman. Yes, true. And this is not mine. If it's yours, I understand. That, you know, Captain Pike looks through this door with its transparent... He looked, it's Star Trek and there's a transparent door. I mean, honestly. You know? How, you, you talked about Toast episodes that they mimed. How many times did they do Wrath of Khan? Oh my god. I didn't Pike even, and Cornwell. Pike and Cornwell. Pike uh, getting injured, getting the radiation burn as Pike captain. Pike and, and the students. Burnham and Arium. Burnham and Arium. Burnham and her mother through the force field. Burnham and her mother through the force field. <laughs> um, Giorgio and Leland in the spore chamber. Everyone in Burnham when they were trying to attract her mother. Yes. Discovery in particular is, like, rather obsessed with calling up the trope in Star Trek of dramatic scenes across transparent openings. Which maybe, you know, maybe that's a general enough thing in televisual media because, you know, you have to show your characters interacting and if they can't get to each other, but you can still frame them both in the camera shot, it's very dramatic. But it's obviously an iconic thing in Star Trek. And they it's did something... it like six times in five episodes at the end of the season. Yes, not only is it an iconic thing in Star Trek, but it's an iconic thing in Star Trek that Discovery felt the need to do again and again and again. Like, we just counted seven of them off the top of our heads. And that's in the latter part of the season. I wasn't writing them all down in the first half of the season. <laughs> have we mentioned yet how they keep forgetting that they have weapons in this show? Well, the mechanics of the space battles are sometimes a little wonky. Well, I mean, I mean when they're on the Section 31 station, and Arium is trying to, like, whatever she's trying to do, and she's, like, begging them to space her so that she doesn't do it. Why don't they just beam Burnham and Nan off of the station and then blow it up with their photon torpedoes? That'll destroy the computer that has whatever it is that Arium's trying to update on it. Especially considering the mention at the beginning of the next episode that they blew up the station off-screen. Plus, they go through this entire minefield, and nobody ever mentions, Hey, why don't we blow up these mines with the phasers, rather than letting them all impact the hull? I did actually think during that scene that if they cut to a shot of them just picking off the mines one by one, that it would be a little Empire Strikes Back. Still, at least I wouldn't have felt like I was the only one that remembered they had weapons. Yeah, okay. Also... Why do they have to blow up Discovery in order to erase the sphere data? Surely they could just destroy the computer storage. Well, I mean, they kind of put plot armor around all that, too, when, you know, they had the sentient save file protecting itself. It wouldn't let them destroy the ship. There would have been some way that it would have prevented them from, like, destroying the mechanical components of the computer system. That's why that would have been such a better idea, because you do it with hand phasers. The computer doesn't control them. 
that puts up shields and, you know, proactively spaces the people who are about to try to destroy it. I also think it was a little weird in the big climactic space battle in the finale that for much of the first part of the battle, the Enterprise and Discovery were just sitting still in the middle of a circle of Section 31 ships. Yeah. Like, I get they had the shuttles and the drones and and, and Also, they used armored shuttle fighters for the first time in the 53-year history of Star Trek. Yeah, like the the closest analog. When does Spock meet with an admiral to order that to be declared not part of canon anymore? Yeah, they had smaller fighters like a couple of times in Deep Space Nine, but yeah, never like whole fleets of armored shuttles, so that's new. Uh, But, like, the positioning and the choreography of that battle was a little underwhelming to me. And can we talk about cinematography a little? Oh, they love their inverted establishing shots on this show. Yes, they they absolutely love turning the ships all around, which is an overcorrection to the two-dimensional presentation in the previous 50 years of Star Trek. Some of the interior camera shots annoyed me. Like, when they would do briefing scenes, or just scenes where people were standing around a table talking, and in order to, like, invest motion into the scene, they had the camera person just running all around the room. Like, the camera is spinning, spinning, (laughs) spinning towards drama. (laughs) Just to try to put some motion in the scene, but I think it was way too much motion. It was just overdone completely especially by like the second or third time they did the same thing (laughs) i don't know if that's the cinematographer or director or producers or or who thought that was a great idea but like you can do it subtly you don't have to have the camera person running all around the actors and also they did the inception hallway fight at the end with giorgio and leland and non where the gravity yeah. went wonky and, and the corridor started turning around which and the corridor turned in sharp 90 degree increments yes which i understand it's an audacious thing for a tv show to do because it's treated as you know somewhat audacious when when movies do it because you, you have to put the whole set up on whatever but visually, the way that the, the camera just sat still and looked down the corridor as it twirled around and, and, and the actors, you know, went from ceiling to the wall to the floor to the ceiling and whatever. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're on the top of the screen, they're on the side of the screen, but the camera's sitting still. That I found a little difficult to follow visually. Really? Yeah. I feel the exact opposite. Really? If the room is moving and the people are moving, hold the camera still so I can see where the fuck everything is moving to. Oh, I don't think the the camera should have been running all around the actors (laughs) again. I don't think the camera should have been rotating or tilting or anything because the room and the actors and the environment is rotating and tilting. Hold the camera still so that I can see where everything else is rotating and tilting to. That was one of the criticisms I had of a lot of the fights in the Star Wars prequels. Like, that thing in Attack of the Clones, where they shut off the lights to have a lightsaber fight in the dark, and then they zoom the camera way in so all you see is this actor's face and a lightsaber flashes in front of him once in a while. Mm. Zoom that the fuck out so I can see the lightsabers in the dark. If the people and the environment is moving all over, hold that camera still so that I can see where everything else is moving. I think that's the best way they could have cinematographed that. (laughs) 
I don't know, as 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 they spun around the screen like that, I, I, I just found it a little difficult to follow who was who at a couple of moments. Yeah. But I mean, what's the point of, like, spinning the room so that the actors are on the ceiling if you just turn the camera so the actors are still standing at the bottom of the screen? Which, uh, by the way, when we say hold the camera still, what we're saying is rotate the camera. And when well, we say rotate the camera so the actors are still at the bottom of the screen, what we mean is hold the camera still. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I understand what we're talking about is relative motion. The camera's motion relative to the room rather than relative to the actors. Okay. As we were watching it, I, I, I thought maybe it was intentionally disorienting because the characters are disoriented, which I understand it on that level. I, I just found it a little off-putting. Yeah, but I mean, if you turn the camera as the room is turning, you're either going to make it exponentially more disorienting or you're just going to, like, defeat the effect totally because it's just going to look like the actor's standing on a rotating stage. Yeah, that's fair. You hold that camera still so that you can establish very firmly that the room is still. It's the force of gravity that's moving around. I also briefly just want to mention the time travel sequence at the end of the finale I thought was super well done. All of the shots of Burnham going through the wormhole and just going through like weird trippy shit and all of the shots of the Discovery going into the wormhole. Uh, s some of those shots were painterly. It, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful sequence. Speaking of how this entire season was an overreaction to all of the worst criticisms of the first season, good god, the Klingons look fucking terrible with hair. I thought they were great. Oh my god! I thought all the different kinds of hair were very good. Oh my god. The one with the mohawk was super fun. The one guy with like the Fu Manchu mustache and beard looked okay, but good god, Laurel looked terrible. Oh my god. I can't even think of when was the last time there was a worse makeup job on a Star Trek show than Laurel with hair. Oh my god. I liked the hair. I liked the variety of hair to reinforce the variety of the Klingons. That I thought was pretty well done. Terrible. Also terrible, nobody involved in writing this entire season of television has the first clue of what the hell the Prime Directive is. Which, I mean, I try to forgive because the Prime Directive has been interpreted in different ways by different shows over the years, however it fits the story, but oh my god. God, they tortured it beyond all recognition trying to invoke it in this thing. A civilization that has access to warp technology and is aware of other cultures, and you're still trying to apply the Prime Directive to them? A human colony from Earth, and you're still trying to apply the Prime Directive to them? Well, that was almost like... They were treating that group of humans almost like an uncontacted tribe. Except they were aware of Earth. They knew the history of Earth. They knew they came from Earth. It's like trying to apply the Prime Directive to the Bringloidy. Well, that would have been an interesting case. It's not that far from trying to apply the Prime Directive to, like, Jupiter Station! I mean... 
Well, Jupiter Station had been cut off before the advent of warp travel and had no idea of the extent of current human technology, they would be almost like an uncontacted tribe. Well, by that logic, the Prime Directive should have applied to Khan and his ship full of supermen. Arguable, yeah. No, terrible. Well, do you think maybe some additional caution in waking up Khan and his people might have behooved them in that episode? Well, by the non-interference directive, they should have just left them where they were. I mean, an abundance of caution. Captain J.T. Esteban probably would have left them where they were and filed a report. We found this ship. It's here heading in this direction. Someone look into it if you want. Not to mention, Captain Pike literally beams down, talks to the guy, says, Hey, I'm Captain Pike from the Starship Discovery of Starfleet of the United Federation of Planets, of which Earth is a member... And I'm the captain of an interstellar spaceship that's part of the Space Force, and now I'm going to beam back to my ship, but the Prime Directive still applies to you. Yeah, well, they had to have a character payoff for the one special science guy. Also, Burnham is like the worst covert operative. She spends that entire episode trying to pick fights with the people she's supposed to be blending in with. Yeah, the science versus faith aspect of that episode was not handled in a way that I would call subtle. Not in the least. And I understand that Star Trek isn't subtle on this point. Like, so many times when they have a Prime Directive episode with an uncontacted tribe of religious people, you know, they're like the Mintakins, you know? Or any other episode where the token religious people, you know, someone beams down and everyone's like... It's an angel! I saw someone come back from the dead! And it's like the most fairy time woo-woo sort of religious people who are usually depicted in these episodes. If you want to talk about fairy time woo-woo, how about that 23rd century power bank from a Federation starship works with the power system of this 21st century church? That was, I am assuming, originally designed to work on an electrical grid. On, on a duotronic circuit? Uh, no, on, like, the national grid. It's got the right connector, the right polarity, the right voltage, the right wattage. Well, Pike knew he was beaming down and bringing a gift to that guy. He probably could have asked Jet Reno to, you know, put a positive and a negative terminal on a power cell. Although, what do the fairy, woo-woo religious people think of that guy after he turns the lights back on? <laughs> also, in all that time, they could never get, like, geothermal power or anything? Hydro dams? Didn't seem like they were trying all that hard. I suppose. Plus, I think you need a certain level of... Like, you need a large enough society to be able to build to the point where you can do that, you know? Yeah. Like, they could have set up, like, a water wheel, I guess. But I don't know if that would have generated enough power. Yeah, maybe, like, the woodworkers or textile people had a water wheel somewhere. No, but seriously, the only thing worse than their interpretation of the Prime Directive was the way that this show constantly and always fucks up the mind meld. The mind meld also has been used and presented in many different ways over the last 50 years. What do you say when you mind meld? My mind to your mind, my thoughts to your thoughts, etc. Et no! <laughs> you did that just to torture me, didn't you? Maybe. This is just like that time I threw a monitor at you. <laughs> 
Do we need to tell the podcast about the time you threw a monitor at me? I, this isn't the time. Speaking of all of the worst criticisms from the worst people, this is actually the best single argument I can come up with that this show actually is not canon, is that they ha have the wrong mind-meld incantation every time, consistently, every time. Oh, God, it drives me up a wall. I can get over the anachronistic technology, I can get over the, they redesigned the uniforms, because God forbid they just use the same uniforms as another show. I can get past a lot of shit, but good God, this simple little detail! Were you also upset when they kept doing the Vulcan salute and no one told each other to live long and prosper? And no one wished anyone peace and long life? That would have been a nice e touch, e but... Even when they're, like, sending their sister through a time bridge? <laughs> At least they just omitted it rather than fucking it up. <laughs> anyway, since this entire episode seems to be my angry screed about the finale and then various smaller offshoot angry screeds about other smaller minor annoyances in the show, you mentioned Harry Mudd before. What the hell have they done to Harry Mudd? Harry Mudd is a two-bit con man, and all of a sudden he's wanted for 20 counts of attempted murder? What the fuck have they done to Harry Mudd? What was on his police report in TOS? Yeah, his police report from TOS says smuggling, transport of stolen goods, purchase of space vessel with counterfeit currency. Well, two-bit con man. <laughs> sure. Although, I mean, the Harry Mudd from Season 1, like, killed the entire Starship Discovery, like, 75 times or whatever. And I mentioned it in the last episode, that that's completely outside the realm of Harry Mudd. But now they've got him wanted for attempted murder times 20. And that's just what I happen to write down. Well, everything is more bombastic now. Also, he's got these android replicants, like, 10 or 15 years before he actually got them in toes. I don't remember how he said he got them in Tos. Well, he, did, he least... just, like, did he just, like, happen upon the planet where they were? Or, like, yeah. hack Roger Corby's lab or whatever? No, what? No. I mean, he at least didn't have them at the time of Mud's women. Uh, yeah, unlikely. Well, he must have had them seized when he got arrested for all those counts of murder. I did like that one of the replicants was in that jacket that he wore in Tos. That was a nice touch. Oh, they'll always put in touches with the uh, props and costumes and stuff. Really? That's why they had, like, the entire crew of the Enterprise under Captain Pike and zero the cage uniforms? Well, that's why they had them in, you know, half-disco, half-toast-style uniforms. I mean, that was a nice attempt at a transitionary form, yeah. Except, at the time of the cage, they weren't wearing original series-type uniforms. Yeah, but, like, a TV show in the 21st century isn't going to have space military people walking around in sweaters. Also, it's weird when you remember the timeline, because apparently the cage should have happened only about three years before this. Yeah. So, like, it's funny that they mention Talos 4 and Burnham doesn't know what it is. Like, you don't recognize the only death penalty in the Federation that was just instituted three years ago? Would that be wide public knowledge? I'm pretty sure if something is so illegal that it carries the only death penalty in the Federation, people would know it's illegal. Yeah, but broadcasting that across the whole fleet would only, like, 
tease people into trying it, wouldn't it? There weren't exactly a lot of people in the menagerie going, Whoa, what's Talos for? No, everyone knew that they were all going to be executed. Mm. You know what I'm thankful for? I am very thankful that we got through this whole season without any permutation of Lorca. <laughs> so many people thought that, like, mysterious green spore that landed on Tilly last season was going to somehow bring Lorca back, or that they were going to somehow find him in the mycelial network, the way they wound up finding Culber, I guess, or that they were going to find Prime Lorca somewhere, but, oh, thank God, they did not find any version of him no way, no how. I agree to an extent, because, good lord, what would they have done with him? On the other hand, I actually really liked Jason Isaac's performance last year, so I'm kind of, I'm sorry that character wound up having to go away. His performance was perfectly good. I think most of the criticisms that we have of, of, of this is on the level of, of writing or just plotting or, or yeah. these things. The actors, the actors are great. Mo most of all them. of them. Most of them. You know, maybe James Frain, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we went over this a bit last year. Nobody knows how to do a Vulcan. Leonard Nimoy was the only person that ever figured out how to play a Vulcan, and he apparently taught Zachary Quinto. No one else knows how to play a Vulcan. You know, I really wonder, maybe I'm generalizing, but I saw it pointed out at some point that the classic Vulcans are all Jews. Leonard Nimoy, Mark Leonard, even Celia Lovsky. <laughs> I'm stereotyping to an extent, but I'm mishpocha, I have the right. There's a certain neuroticism to Vulcans. There's a certain understanding that an actor has to have of someone who's deeply emotional, but deeply repressed, and deeply invested in not showing anything, but it's always there just under the surface. There's a tension that you have to portray there. Yes, that's what I said when we talked about this earlier, that, like, Leonard Nimoy and Zachary Quinto, they do play it very much like the person is feeling deep emotion but trying very hard not to express their emotion. Whereas everyone else who plays a Vulcan just tries to be, like, serene. We talked about this before. I think Tim Russ did a fine job in Voyager. As fine as any goy could Yeah, do. yeah, he did. Yeah, he was fine. Um, otherwise, I mean, Vulcans are a little thin on the ground in later Star Trek until Enterprise, which was a whole other thing. Vulcans are very staid and dignified. They're not calm and serene. I mean, I guess maybe some Vulcans are, but... They're calm and serene, and a, lot of, and a lot of the ones in later Star Trek and Season 1 of Discovery are just assholes. Yeah. Like, there was that Admiral in, in Season 1 who was just a dick. Well, that, that's sort of the Enterprise characterization. The Vulcans are all dicks. I mean, that was true, you know, there was the Captain in DS9... Okay, yeah, that's you know, true. He, he, he was an, an asshole, and, and, and some of the other ones in, in guest starring roles, uh, even though they're a little thin on the ground in a lot of the Burman era, there's that subtlety that is difficult to do, and I don't know if correlation equals causation, but a lot of the people who did it in the Toast era were, were Jews. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's stereotyping, but hey. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Burnham became very angry with Control Guy when he admitted that he was the Section 31 supervisor of her parents' project that wound up with them being tracked down by Klingons and killed. Like, Burnham is in Starfleet. She often gets ordered to do things that put her at risk. 
I don't understand her violent, angry reaction to, yeah, I I was your parents' superior, and they were on a mission, and it went bad. Because it was touching on her foundational trauma. I mean, so much that Burnham does is a reaction to various structural traumas that she has. And through her learning on Vulcan and a lot of other things that happened, so much of what she does is an effort to hide that behind Vulcan philosophy, behind Starfleet protocols, behind a lot of things that she's able to hide behind. But in that moment, Leland touched on her foundational trauma and she had a reaction. That I thought was, was very believable. I just thought it was out of character. Like, of all the people who would understand you're part of an organization and you're ordered to undergo a mission and it might be dangerous and you might die there, but you're part of the organization and you're ordered to undergo a mission. There's also the element of Burnham's character that Spock mentioned explicitly a couple of times that, you know, she's always taking responsibility for everything that happens, whether it's her responsibility or not. He shares your view of the Klingon War, you know, when he blamed her for it sarcastically. <laughs> and blamed her for her parents' death sarcastically. I was wondering, when the plot went in that direction, that her parents were working for Section 31, there's all, all these arc elements that they were engulfed in, I was wondering whether the, the show is kind of trying to lift some of those traumas gradually off of the character. As a character, she's defined by guilt. There was guilt over her parents, there was guilt over what happened to Prime Giorgio. Which, by the way, you talk about overcorrecting for things. I think they are way overcorrecting for not having Prime Giorgio around anymore. <laughs> like, they had Giorgio in two episodes and they decided, Wait, Michelle Yeoh is awesome! We have to find more ways to get her back! And they keep finding ways of bringing her back. But Burnham is defined by her guilt over, over what's happened to people close to her and ultimately the Federation when she blames herself for, for all the deal with the Klingons. And so they're kind of chipping away at that. And I wonder what happens to the character if she ever learns to forgive herself for some of those things or recognize that her role was smaller than she thought. There's also something to explore in the year 3200. This episode is a lot of me angrily railing against the show, considering I actually thought it was an improvement over the second season for a lot of it. Yeah, I do want to convey, I actually thought this season was a lot better, and I, I really do want to like the show very much. Just that finale, just... I mean, I went over me and endings, that finale just, whoa. Like, it's one thing to write the Discovery and the entire crew of the Discovery out of the show called Discovery, but, like, just the cherry on top with Spock literally telling the Admiral, make an order that Discovery is no longer part of canon, it's, it, was, it was just too much for me. I was reminded of the fact that when they announced Discovery, I was a little curmudgeonly because I would have preferred for them to do a show set after all of the existing shows. And now next season they will be. <laughs> so, you know, they got around to it. I mean, they announced the new Patrick Stewart show that's set after the time frame of all the other shows, except for the far future flash-forwards, and now Discovery is going way past all of the far future flash-forwards. So, 
How can I complain about that? I guess we'll see you when season three comes out, and we do another two and a half hour show where we yell about all the things that we don't like about it, and then say, but it was an improvement and we really like the show. Somehow I don't think we're going to be doing a uh, two-hour podcast breaking down the teens Nickelodeon show in, in a couple of years, do you? In a couple of years. That'll be three more episodes of the podcast. Should we talk about the score, even though they didn't release it? I noticed them using the main Discovery theme more, and obviously there was more of the Toast fanfare for a lot of the Yeah, especially in the early episodes, I noticed that a lot. Yeah, a lot for Captain Pike and a lot for the Enterprise. Otherwise, I didn't really notice the music much. A lot of it was generally, you know, in the same idiom, obviously, as last season, so... Aside from the moments when I recognized that they were using the theme or, or the Toast fanfare, it was pretty generic. Yeah, it's kind of hard to judge without listening to the score, or at least watching the show a bunch more times to try to pick it out. Mm. Alright, I think that will do it for our discussion of Star Trek Discovery Season 2 and related concepts. If you would like to contact me, you can find me on Twitter or Tumblr or Instagram at Bun. If you would like to reach the show for advice... We haven't done an advice hour in a little while, but we need questions in order to do so. Uh, please email us, spectacularadvice at gmail.com, and we will uh, be sure to put one together when we can. Scott, would you like people to contact you on the internet? Do you know I got over 50 messages from women with generic names, all of them inviting me to a private sex dating site? didn't know our listeners were that fun. I'm so glad that you people dragged me into the world of social media. And you didn't have any music on MySpace, right? No, I didn't have any music. Good. Good, alright. That'll do it for us. Thank you very much for being with us, listeners. We will see you next time. Anyway, Star Trek. <laughs>